If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 20, as we've been journeying through this Gospel, investigating the life of Jesus. We'll be in the latter part or middle of the chapter there uh, this morning. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Maybe you have experienced a question like this. Maybe you've experienced a question like this even today. I don't know. But have you ever been asked a question in such a way that no matter how you answered the question, you were in trouble? Ever have a question like that? No matter how you the question, the question is answered in such a way. Let me put it to you this way: kind of, you know, if you start a question off that says "Have you ever stopped?" is pretty much going to put you in in problem, right? So, if I was to say to you today, "Have you stopped lying?" How would you respond? If you respond yes, then you're indicating I am a liar. I have been lying. If you say no, then why are you still lying? Right? So either way, you're in trouble. You answer it yes in the affirmative or in the negative. Either way, you're in trouble. And this is what Jesus is facing the last week of his life. These types of questions. I'm like, he's three and a half years of ministry, and now I got to get these stupid questions that are trying to trick me, right? Uh, by the way, uh, th- there are stupid questions. I didn't know if you knew that or not. Some people say there are no stupid questions. Well, the Pharisees have proven different uh, here, trying to get Jesus to, to trip him up there. And so we're in the last week of Jesus' ministry. He is in the city of Jerusalem. It is Passover season. And as we saw last week, he was in the temple uh, teaching. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and uh, elders and scribes came, interrupted his teaching, and asked him one of these I'm going to call stupid questions, <laughs> trying to get him uh, to trip up in what he is doing. And Jesus uh, masterfully turned the question against them and uh, didn't answer the question, and then concluded with a parable, well, that was not flattering for the Pharisees. He laid out the heart's intent of the Pharisees to everyone that was there, that they were angry with Jesus to the point that they wanted him dead. And so we pick up right at the tail end of that. We're still in the temple here. And Luke gives us a beautiful picture of how the chief priests, scribes, and elders felt. You ever want to just kind of be in the, in the room and see how that happened? Here we are. We're in the room. Verse number 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Have you ever just looked at someone and you could just see in their face that they're gritting their teeth and their, their knuckles are white and they're just... That was every one of those people right there. They're like, this dog, I can't believe he, he, he knows what we're going to do and I, I, I hate him even more, right? I mean, we, we have a hard time saying I hate Jesus in our vocabulary like, like that. We, we could, but the Pharisees and the, the chief priests and what... You know, I hate this guy. As a matter of fact, I want to grab him. I want to hurt him. I want to kill him. I want to destroy him. And as they, I think one of them maybe even leaned forward and someone goes, hold on, hold on. Why? Because the crowd was there. The people were there. The people loved Jesus. Uh, and, And they knew that if they tried to do anything against him in that moment, because they feared what the people would do politically and also physically, uh, they figured they would turn against them and try to uh, destroy them. So in their mind, they had already planned that they wanted to kill Jesus, but they felt like they were going to do this. So 
So they regrouped, they regathered, okay, we can't, we can't get him now, we're in the crowd, we're in the middle of the people, we can't, we can't get to him, so let's, let's really amp up this plan, here's what we're going to do, and so they, they, I don't know if they did a Pharisee huddle or, you know, whatever, but anyways, uh, they got together, they started talking, and this is what they did in verse 20, so they watched him, they watched Jesus, and sent spies, <laughs> they're not going to do it themselves, one, because, you know, they stand out in a crowd. So they, they hire some spies who pretend to be sincere. I love that statement. You ever been around someone who pretends to be sincere, right? They pretend to be sincere, uh, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdictions of the governor. In other words, what they did is they put Jesus on 24-hour surveillance, that's what they did. They didn't have cameras, so they had to put people out there watching. And they had people watching. I don't know how many of these spies, but what they were supposed to do is they were hired to blend into the crowd. They were going to be amongst the people. They're going to look the same, blend in. They're going to get close to Jesus, get as close to Jesus as they can to befriend him if possible. They were to look sincere. They were like, oh, I'm really into this. Oh, I'm really into what Jesus is saying. Oh, that's, that's really good teaching. Let's be close. They're really acting sincere, and you'll see how that plays out in just a moment here. But they were doing it to do anything and everything that they could to discredit Jesus. So they do. They get into the crowd. They pretend to be sincere and greatly interested in Jesus' teaching. And all they wanted to do was to get Jesus to lower his defenses. So verse 21, as we continue on, so they asked him, <laughs> I love this, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Ever just want to gag, Right? That's what they were doing, all these flowery words. Oh, Jesus, you know, in essence, what they were doing, Jesus, you're the man. You are the best. You are such a truth. No one teaches the truth like you teach the truth. As a matter of fact, when I hear you speak, it's clearer than any other rabbi I've ever heard in my entire life. So good. The way that you, you put those words together, and they, they sound so good. Oh, it's, it's wonderful, and you don't, you don't show any partiality. You don't, you don't talk to the rich people as if they're better than the poor people. You, don't, you bring, bring all of us. It's all a great big family. You're so good. Anybody sick yet? Right? Okay. That's what they were doing. Truly. Tru and I love this. They, they could go any farther because, because they're hired by the Pharisees who thought this guy was, was, was a false Messiah and blasphemous. You teach the ways of God. Everything you say is coming from God himself. We just believe. Oh, it's the best. Can I tell you a little secret from a pastor's point of view? The person that gushes the most of the sermon when they leave is the person that was probably sleeping during the. That's usually my what, what I get uh, out of it. There, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say this in public. I'm sorry, I apologize. But I have had at people actually I know who were snoring in service that came up to me and go, "That's the best sermon you've ever preached." I'm like, "Yeah, you slept through it." <laughs> so they were flattering Jesus, and of course, as you full well know. Uh, Jesus wasn't buying 
any of it. He understood what their tactic was. But, but let me ask you this question, just kind of, this is a little side note to what we're going to look at uh, today. But, but, but would that work on you? Would that work, or, or has it worked on you? Can I, can I tell you, I mean, people can be kind, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real over-the-top over the flattery and stuff like that. The Bible warns us to be careful of people that, that are always flattering you. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 29.5 just, just, just says this, A person who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for him to step into. Now see, we get this with our teenagers, Right? When our teenagers come to us, oh, mom, you're the best. That was the best dinner. We go, what do you want? Right? Right? We, we know. But sometimes with adults and others, we, we, we don't get it. We're like, oh, you know, we can get a big head. That's probably why I have so little hair. But anyways, the book of Psalms tells us, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Be cautious of those who are over-flattering. But what's so interesting about this and what's so funny about this to me uh, is that these guys were using this tactic of flattery when Jesus himself said earlier in Luke's gospel, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. <laughs> He's the one who knows what flattery is. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. He's like, guys... You're flattering me, you're trying to build me up here, and I'm the one that just a little while ago laid out why you shouldn't do this. I think I've configured this out. I think I've, I've got this. And so they're flattering him, trying to build him up, and all this kind of stuff, all for the purpose of asking him a question that's going to get in trouble. So this is all the setup here of what they're doing. Let me give you the question of what they're going to ask. So they wanted to ask this question we saw in verse number 22. Here comes the serious question now. You're this great teacher. You know right from wrong. You speak from God. Tell us, teacher, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In other words, is it right for us to pay our Roman taxes or not? And in order for us to understand what happens here, we need to understand a little bit of, of, the, of the culture here and the controversy that, that's taking place because these guys, in asking, I, I just love this, as we know, Jesus is going to turn this around on them, but they set themselves up for a great fall, right? Uh, professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools, the scripture says. So they were asking, who should we give to? And the problem is, is that Caesar represented the oppressive pagan Roman government that the children of Israel we're under and we're being oppressed by. So here's the quandary that we need to understand. If Jesus was to say that, uh, for Jesus to say that the law of Moses per permitted them to pay taxes to Rome would be to alienate the people who were heavily taxed by the Roman enemies. So they knew, like, the people will hate this. They hate the Romans, and they're so overtaxed by the government that they can barely make ends meet. And so if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and get, pay your taxes to Caesar, that's okay. The law of Moses permits it. It's all good. Who, who this pagan, he thought he was a god anyways, was forcing this on the children of Israel, would get the people angry at Jesus, and the Pharisees would be ready to pounce on him and go. But if Jesus was to say that the law of Moses forbade taxes to the Romans, well, that would be committing treason to Rome. 
and the Romans would put him to death immediately. So, if he answered in the affirmative, he was in trouble. If he answered in the negative, he was in trouble. What is he going to do? And these spies were patting each other on the back. We got him. The Pharisees couldn't even come up with a question like this. This is good. They're going to be so happy. They're going to double our pay when we're done. This is so good. We've got him trapped. <laughs> or so they thought. Verse 23, I love this. But he, that's Jesus, perceived their craftiness. Jesus saw right through them. He discerned what they were doing. And so he said to them, this and this is absolutely amazing the problem is, is that we don't know the culture that well but when you study this this is so amazing what jesus does does because jesus sets them up right here he's setting them up right here watch this he says show me a denarii or denarius okay which was the common coin of that day i'll explain that in a minute whose likeness and inscription does it have and they said caesar's okay apparently they had a denarius on them and they took it out, and they showed him the denarius, and they said it has Caesar's likeness, image inscribed on it. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, uh, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answers, they became silent. Can I give you my translation? He shut them up, right? He put them in their place, and they couldn't say a word there, but... What we don't get and what we don't understand is we think that's just a benign statement. No big deal. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the thing is, is not, Jesus wasn't putting them in their place when he made the statement. He put them in their place when he asked for the coin. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. Here's, here's what's so uh, amazing about this that, that we need to understand. And now let me set it up this way. You remember a couple weeks ago when Jesus came into Jerusalem? And when he came into Jerusalem, he went into the temple. And when he went into the temple, there were all these merchants, all these people selling for the, for the Passover feast. They were cheating the people and all that. You remember all that? And he threw, cast them out because they were cheating the people. And, and my house would be a house of prayer. Do you remember then that there was a second group that's mentioned there? Not only was it the merchants that were selling the, the animals and the sacrifices, but there were money changers there. Why in the world would there have to be money changers in the temple? What money are they changing? Well, what they were changing was this. You were not allowed to use Roman coins, Roman money in the temple. As a matter of fact, you were not allowed to carry Roman coins into the temple. Why? Why could you not take that? And basically what they did is they changed out the money to a, a coin that they allowed for the temple tax that they would pay or to buy those things uh, outside the temple as, he was, as you were coming in. You couldn't take those coins into the temple. Why? Because it was against Jewish law. As a matter of fact, it was so against Jewish law, it goes all the way back to the first of the Ten Commandments. What am I referring to? Well, what you're going through your mind right now. The Ten Commandments. Wait a minute. It doesn't say anything about money or coins there. What's it, what are you talking about? Look at the question that Jesus asked them before that. Whose likeness is inscribed on the coin? Why, it's Julius Caesar. And even on the coin there, it talked about Julius Caesar in their language that him being the, the only God to be worshipped. 
Okay? Well, the first commandment says that there will be no other gods before God, and you will not even bring in any graven images of God. This was an idol. The Jews looked at it as an idol. As a matter of fact, they, they, because it had uh, Julius Caesar on the coin, you were not allowed to carry this money into the temple. Whoever these spies were, they should have known this unless they had just gotten paid by the Romans, uh, by the Pharisees with Roman money to do this or whatever. I mean, Jesus says, give me a denarius. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus doesn't have any money on him. The disciples don't have any money on him. The people in the crowd don't have any money on them because you can't bring Roman money into the temple. And he, said, and he specifically asks for a Roman coin. And apparently, one of these guys reaches into his money bag, pulls out the Roman coin, and goes, here you go, to which everybody standing there would have been like, what? <laughs> Why do you have this coin in the temple? And so they, he set him up right there. So they already lost face with, uh, uh, with the people there. The, the spies already lost face with the people. And then he says to them, what he says. So I think what Jesus is doing here, I think for us today, what the real key is and where we're going to go today with this, this is the setup for a lesson that Jesus really wants us to understand and to learn uh, to bring him even greater glory. And really, where we're going to go right now, I'm going to ask, ask you to fasten your seatbelts uh, for what Jesus has for us in light of our culture today. Are y'all intrigued? Yeah. I'm a little scared. But I got to tell you what Jesus says, right? Are you ready? Okay. Uh, and, and I changed my email, by the way. So, no. Anyways. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach a very important lesson. And what he does here now is he does make this statement. He says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And I don't think he was making that a statement to throw them off because he'd already thrown off uh, these guys. I think he was making a genuine statement for everybody to learn a godly principle here that he wants us to understand. It seems like a very simple statement, but it has great meaning for us today and has great meaning mainly for our testimony. And how we live for God. I want to take the last part of his statement here first to blend that into the first part of his statement. And so he says this. He says, render to God the things that are God's. Now I'm going to ask you a question here. It's not a stupid question like the Pharisees ask. Hopefully it's an easy question for you to answer. And that is this. What belongs to God? Oh, you guys are, man, right on there. Everything. We know that. Everything belongs to God. Everything on this earth belongs to God. Every system, including governmental systems on this earth, belong to God and that He ordains them. Every possession you have belongs to God. Even you belong to God. The point is this. When you realize that all of life, including all of the government's rights, powers, and possessions, belong to God then you will be in a proper frame of mind to do the first part of what Jesus says, render to Caesar or render to the government what is the government's. Anybody squirming yet? Right? God and I talked about this this week. He said I had to preach it. I'm sorry. So 
Jesus is telling us that we are citizens of two kingdoms. Our residency is in heaven, but where we live is here. And so the reality is, is that as believers, we need to recognize that and we need to understand that everything is God's. And when we recognize that, then there is no problem for us to render to the government what is the government. So what does this mean for us? Or better, what does this entail? Well, the context, obviously, of what Jesus is talking about is taxes. Give your, pay your taxes, okay? So yeah, tax season's coming up, pay your taxes, okay? That's, that's the simple, easiest explanation. But when he makes a statement to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, when we recognize if God is in control of everything, it means more the fact that everything that we have that is God's gives to God. And everything that is the government's then is to be given to the government. So my point is, is this goes much farther than just our taxes. All right? Trust me. I ask God, can I just leave it at taxes? Let's just go there. He's, no, you've got to go farther. So um, you ever know that when you argue with God, you don't win? just want you to know that. So... This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. As his followers, we are to render everything that is the government's to the government. The same way that we render everything that is God's to God. The Apostle Peter put it this way. And yes, it's, it, let me give you the reference so you can look it up later. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. This is in your Bible. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. As followers of Jesus, we are called by God to be subject to the government that is over us. That's what we are called to do. That brings glory to God. That brings honor to him because he is the one who has ordained. So Peter puts it this way, echoing exactly what Jesus says. Let me break this down for you. He's saying this. He says, subject yourself to the government for the Lord's sake. Do you see that? For the Lord's sake. God is the one who ordains governments, whether we agree with them or not, whether they're even spiritual or not, because the government is not a spiritual entity, all right? And so God ordains what governments are in place, and the government is there because it does bring general protection for us and stuff like that, and so we are to put ourselves underneath the laws, underneath the regulations, underneath what the government has for us. So in other words, everything in this world is God's, therefore, in being subject to God, you are also to be subject to the government that is over you. Because God has ordained that government. Second, what he's saying here is this, because he gives the idea of emperors as supreme, governors, uh, and all of that. He says, you are to be subject to the government over you, despite whether you like the government or agree with the government or not. Because they're ordained by God. Now you say, Pastor Mike, are we just supposed to be doormats? No, hold on. We're going to get there. But listen to me. John MacArthur, pastor uh, of Grace 
uh, church in, in California, says this. He paraphrases, paraphrases 1 Peter, and he says, uh, 1 Peter says, Honor the king, submit to everybody who has authority over you. And he says these words, I don't care whether it is a democracy in a Congress or local authorities, police, or a communist dictator or a Caesar. Caesar has his sphere by God's design. And we owe what we owe in the providence of God. What that government requires is what we pay or what we give. Jesus affirms the role of government. It is our it is ordained by God for man's well-being and protection, and without it, you have anarchy, chaos, and destruction. And I'll have his email for you if you want to email him, okay? But I agree with, with his statement. Now, what that means is this. Look at the government that the children of Israel were under. They were under, a demo, not a democracy, a dictatorship. They were under uh, Roman rule. They, they were uh, subjects to Caesar. They were being completely treated unfair. And I think the reason, uh, one of the reasons why uh, things are different for us is because we live in a democracy. You see, either you followed the government uh, in Jewish day or in the first century, or you died. That was really it. Those were only your two options uh, there. That, that was all you had. That kind of makes it a little bit easier to submit if you, if you need to submit. However, we don't have that in our country. We have a democracy. Our governmental system is different than what it was in, uh, for the Jews. So we have what are called rights, and I praise God that we do have rights. I hope you are too, right? You praise God for that. Now listen very carefully. And we are allowed to fight for those rights within the right context of our legal system. Do you hear me? We have a right to stand up for our rights within the right proper context of what our legal system allows us to do. It doesn't mean we can go off rogue or do our own thing, but we can, we can follow what the laws have laid out because that's what our government has laid out for us. We can fight for those rights. But listen to me very carefully. If our rights are taken away by the laws of our government, if things that are suggested become law, you see the difference? Mandates aren't law, right? If they become law, then we as followers of Christ are to be obedient to the laws of our government, whether we like it or not. Except, and you guys are waiting for this one, I know it, I can see it in your eyes, except for one huge important exception, and that is this, if the laws that our government create go completely against God's word and God's laws. God's laws are first, and then the government's laws there. So if the government creates a law that is against God's law, then we respond as the apostles responded in Acts chapter 5 when they were told by their government, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter stood up and said these words, which we can also say, we must obey God rather than men. So we, we, we follow God's laws over man's laws, but when man's laws do not contradict God's laws, we must follow man's laws. Why? Well, whether we like it or not, it's because of our testimony. 
Why do you follow? I don't follow man's laws because I like man's laws. I don't follow man's laws because I even agree with man's laws. I follow man's laws because my God has ordained government and tells me to obey those laws. It's a testimony. We are to obey the laws of the government. So let me wrap it up this way, and I want to leave you with this this thought. Why in the world would God create a system where we would have to follow the laws of man that we know that we don't agree with or we don't like or doesn't work the way I want it or, and, you know, you can't please everybody all the time. Why would God do that? Because the ultimate point is this. Now, if you haven't got anything, listen to me. Listen to this. The ultimate point is this, is that no matter what the government does, no matter what laws they lay out, no matter what we have to follow, we don't need to worry about it because we serve a God who is in control over it. Right? If I have to do something to uh, obey the law of my government that I don't like and I don't necessarily want, but it doesn't go against God's word, then I have to put my trust in God, not the government. I put my trust in God that God full well knows what is going to happen or what I have to do, and I follow through with that so that I can keep my testimony and say, I'm trusting my God, I'm not trusting the government. Do you see what I'm saying? We are not to be a part of civil unrest. We are not to try to overthrow governments. The church is not designed to take over the government. We are called to follow God. We are called to keep our testimony pure so that when we are able to give an account of what we believe and why we believe it, we can stand up for Him and give that reason. It's another reason for me to go, why why did you do that? Well, I did that because I am following God's rules. I'm following God's rules laws and he tells me to obey in those areas except in the situations and i believe they're coming and i believe we're going to have to make a choice in the future that that we have to stand on god's laws over men's laws i believe that's coming i don't believe it's here yet okay i'm like and you're like pastor have you not walked through the last three years with us (laughs) yes i've i've been here i understand they're not here yet but there's a day coming I think it's setting it all up. But we're not there. And because we're not there, we need to obey the laws as God has called us to do. And to not do it, and this is even worse and hard, are you ready? Is sin. It is sin. Because you are disobeying God and going against Him. Peter said, for his sake, for the Lord's sake, we do this. For our testimony's sake, to be a good citizen, to have a good testimony, to point people to Christ, we do this. So listen to me very carefully. Fight for your rights. That's absolutely the best thing to do within the legal system. Right? We can do that because our law, our government allows us to do that. However, follow the laws of the land and bring glory to God. And I believe soon, unfortunately, we might have to take a stand for God against our government. But not yet. Not yet. The day is coming. All of this, all of this is because we don't trust our government, we trust our God. 
we trust our God. And we know that He knows all. He's in control of all. Even these things that we don't agree with. So can I leave you with this? Trust God. He has everything. What does God control? He has everything under control. I hate how I feel about what's happening in this world. I hate my feelings about it. That's why I have to always go back to the fact my God is in control. <laughs> I don't like a lot of things that are happening in our government. I disagree with a lot of things that are going on in our government today. But I don't have to worry about it. Do you recognize that? It's, that's what really this is. It's freeing. I don't have to worry about it. I simply have to obey. And it starts with me obeying my God, obeying God, which leads me to obey what I obey in the government so that He is glorified. Because He is in control of everything. I will be available after service if you want to come talk to me. <laughs> but please hear the word of God. Will you stay with me in God's house today? God, we have fun, but it is serious. It's not easy, God. Not even for me. I struggled hard to preach this message, Lord, because in my flesh, I fight this. There's a lot of things that are happening in our country today and around this world that are hard. But God, I believe with all of my heart they're part of your plan. And they're a part of your plan because you are in control. And God, really, you want to free us from the burdens and the worry of that. You want us just to trust you. So God, help us to do that. Help us to be the citizens you've called us to be. Help us to render to the government what's the government's and render to you what is for you. And God, we trust you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.